And good morning. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Um, a real privilege to be starting off a new series here talking about Nehemiah. Um, I'm really looking forward to the story of Nehemiah. It's actually one of my favourite um, Bible stories. It's, it's surprising, but it's such a, uh, such a complete story for people talking about building community, talking about building a church, talking about building for God's kingdom. It's, it's, it's an awesome privilege to be kicking off this series. It also touches on one of my other great interests, which is, is history. Um, so uh, because it's the first in this series, I need to give a bit of background to the story. I need to talk a bit about where Nehemiah comes from and where the story comes from and where we are in the, the history of God's people. Uh, so we've done the whole thing of God's people gathering together. Um, they've been set apart as, as Israel, as God's people in, in a new kingdom. God has established his people in Jerusalem. They've built the temple. They worship together there. And God's people are built into a community in their city. Uh, it has walls and, and laws which are setting them apart as a symbol of them being a people knitted together to be different in the world they live in. Uh, Israel are given a clear mandate from God, a promise that he will always lead and will establish them as a people as long as they are obedient to him. This meant that they had to be separate from the people around them. They had to not marry into different communities. They had to not accept um, cultures from, from outside of their community. And they had to not give themselves to serving other powers and authorities around them. Uh, they had to not build these allegiances with the other kingdoms around them. God had set them apart to be different, to live different, to have different laws, to have a different way of living. Um, and they would be successful within that. God promised them success, promised them multiplication, promised to be building all the time. Uh, but this would be a really weird story if there wasn't a twist, if something else didn't happen within this story. And so obviously, as we all know, God's people didn't keep their side of that promise. And they did begin to give themselves to other cultures. They adopted traits and traditions from other cultures around them. Um, they begin to marry and enslave themselves to serving other kingdoms instead of just to, to waiting on God to lead and to guide them. Israel, Israel's leaders so often get caught up in playing politics, in building allegiances and alliances rather than honouring and serving and seeking after their true God. And as a result, the whole kingdom is divided, it falls and God's people are exiled in an attempt to destroy their history and exploit their skill and their wealth. Now, I have to say something about, um, about how ex exiles work. Um, the exiles were a symbol of how God's established people. His design needed to be valued and protected. And they're a picture of this because once exile happens, God's whole plan seems to fall apart. The exile of God's people appeared for hundreds of years to be a sign of God withdrawing his hand completely from his people. But in actual fact, it transpired that by going through the exile and having to be reunited under God's hand, God kind of destroys idolatry in Israel because it never really occurs again. Even up till today, the same picture doesn't happen again that we've seen previously for the Israelites. Now, exile works as a strategy to, uh, to destroy the challenges to authority. It was, uh, it, was, it was about moving communities who present challenge to the new authorities. The Babylonian kings would spread people groups out to divide and conquer their perceived opposition. And later the Persian rulers also stripped Israel of all their property. They lauded their power by moving influential people and the leaders of the next generation. They retrained them to forget their history, to forget their culture, to move on from their religious practices. For so many other people groups, uh, this meant the end of their traditions. It meant the end of their culture. 
It meant the end of their gods. It meant the end of their tribes. Um, All of their worship, all of their practices fell apart because they just adopted this new culture and became ambassadors for it in their people groups. But Israel's God stands alone because he shows he's not merely a tribal deity. He is God over all kings, over all authorities, over all powers. And throughout the period while his people are in exile and spread throughout pagan pagan kingdoms, God demonstrates his power and his authority time and time again. And it's amazing when God moves. The story of Nehemiah actually begins with the story of Ezra. Ezra is living through the same period and experiences. In fact, Nehemiah was, in some versions of the Bible, called Ezra II, um, because the two stories are so synonymous and run alongside each other. Ezra's living through the same period and the same experiences as Nehemiah. And he discovers the book of God's law and begins a campaign dotted with miracles to reinstate the worship and obedience Israel had fallen from in the first place. Ezra's God-given mandate is to rebuild the temple. He's a preacher and a teacher of the law. He longs to see the teaching of God's ways reinstated and established among God's people. Can you imagine a situation where a king whose, whose people have conquered another people group turns around and says, okay, it's time for you to teach your people about their history, to teach them about their past, take them off and rebuild the kingdom that they used to be a part of. Start again, start afresh. Let's go back to relive what your people used to be. Can you imagine a king who would then finance that, who would then support that, who would then send people who were slaves back to rebuild their former kingdom and their former tribes and their former people groups? It just wouldn't happen. But this is exactly what happens with Ezra in his story. He goes to the king with the the words that God has given him. And the king literally says, you go, teach your people about their past. Teach the people of Israel who they were meant to be. Teach them who God called them to be. And then he says, don't just do that, but anyone who wants to go with you can go with you to rebuild the temple. And he sets free the slaves, sets free the people who had no right to be free to go back and to rebuild the temple but not just that, Artaxerxes, the king, also funds it. He returns all the things that they took. He returns the things they stole from the temple, gives it back to Ezra, and then he pays out of his own pocket as well, gives them even more money to go and to rebuild. There is no question that God is at work in this time. There's no question that God is moving, not just on his people, not just in his people, but also for his people. His hand is upon this pagan king, directing him, demonstrating that God is the king above all other kings. I'd like to just now read the passage that we're looking at today, which is from Nehemiah 1, and we're going to go as far as chapter 2, verse 8. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant are in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, 
O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants, who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. I love the book of Nehemiah. It begins with such a great question. With Nehemiah turning to Hananiah and saying, How's it going? It's a question we need to get used to asking more and more. Um, He's essentially saying, how's it going rebuilding the kingdom of God? He's essentially saying, how is it in your town? What are the challenges you're facing? He's essentially saying, come on, how can I support you? What's happening? Are God's wishes and God's plans being fulfilled as we expect them to? What can we do to, to move forward the purposes of God? Thirteen years ago, Ezra set about rebuilding the temple in the community of Israel. So is eager to, Nehemiah is eager to know um, how much progress is being made. But the news is not good. He's told that the walls are knocked down, the gates are burnt, and worse than that, the people are suffering. The people are in big trouble. Nehemiah's response, ne- Nehemiah's response is to weep and to fast. And I guess my big question is, how often do we look at the world around us and turn to tears? How often do we look at the world around us and feel the need to weep like Nehemiah did? 
For days, he wept and fasted. He continued working, he continued serving the king, he continued doing his job, but he also wept over what had happened in his hometown. How often do we look at the grand task of rebuilding the church and weep at the brokenness and devastation that stands before us? Just to give you some context, Nehemiah is based in Susa. He's about 850 miles from Jerusalem in modern-day Iran. Nehemiah is in a hard-earned position in Persia. He's got privilege. He works hard. He's trusted by the king. And he's surely not affected personally by the fall of Jerusalem. He probably doesn't have relatives in the area. He's probably never been there. Probably doesn't really mean much to him personally. But his heart is joined to God's heart. And God's heart is affected by the fall of Jerusalem. I don't believe Nehemiah weeps because of the personal impact it has on him. I don't think he weeps because he really liked the architecture of the city, the cobbled streets and the tall towers. I don't think that meant anything to him. I think he weeps because of the people falling. I don't think it's because of a shattered nationalistic pride. You know, it'd be easy to weep over the, the, the kingdom that's fallen, but actually it's because of the sin of the people. I think the thing that affects him the most is that he understands God's promise was dependent on their obedience. And he recognised that God isn't breaking his promise. God is seeing through that they haven't been obedient, they haven't followed his laws, they haven't been faithful like they should have been. And the people have fallen far from God. Nehemiah understands that obedience and relationship with God is the greatest trait and privilege of his people. Nehemiah sees how they spurned God. Nehemiah weeps and he takes responsibility for the sins of his people. He repents and pleads once more for God's glory to be manifest. Nehemiah's drive isn't gained, isn't garnered from personal ambition or from nationalistic pride. It's, it's not even really from the sadness he feels at the devastation. It's easy to get upset about something. Nehemiah is motivated to action because he sees the glory of God and he longs for it to be seen clearly among God's people and those they live amongst. I guess when we talk about weeping, um, as a parent and, and any other parents watching can, can associate with, with children crying over some strange things. So I'd just like to show you some clips. Here's some children crying over some slightly bizarre things. Okay, let's be clear, Nehemiah wasn't crying over something that was insignificant, something that was unimportant. Um, Nehemiah was weeping for a good purpose. Just to give you a bit more perspective about Nehemiah's position, he was cupbearer to the king, so although a servant, Nehemiah is clearly well regarded and respected. He has a, a job that is both horrendous but also very privileged. He has responsibility for everything the king drinks, right from production to storage to presenting it and pouring it for the king. It's his responsibility to make sure that the king doesn't die from his drink being poisoned. Nehemiah is one of very few people who can daily approach the king. He has a duty to preserve the king's life. He has regular access to the perceived highest power in the land. But Nehemiah is also a picture of the exiled people because he's been dragged from his people and placed among strangers. 
He's been given duties and responsibilities among a culture which is at odds with his own culture. He serves in the courts of a victorious enemy of God's people, preserving the life of the one who is responsible for the death and destruction of so many of his own people. And yet when Nehemiah stands before the king, the king has never seen him sad. The Nehemiah, Nehemiah has never been anything but professional in front of his king. See, Nehemiah is an ordinary man, working in an ordinary job in a time of adversity and brokenness. And his day-by-day life is epitomized by Colossians 3.23. It says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. It's a great challenge for us to stand in our workplaces and to recognize that we're working for God, ahead of for our bosses, ahead of for the earning of money, ahead of for the reward that we receive in the current times. How important it is that we stand out in our workplace as people who do an exceptional job. For me, in this period, we can kind of question the place of worship in our lives. It's been so hard, hasn't it? For many of us, worship has been about singing on a Sunday morning. We, we might say that it isn't. We, we love to say that. It's so important that worship is part of our lifestyle, that worship is central to that. But for many of us, an essential part of our worship has been week by week, meeting together and singing together. And even now that we can meet together, some of us, it's still not the same because we still can't sing and worship together. And it's, it's right that we miss it. It's right that we're, we're disappointed. It's right that we're longing to do it again because that's a God-given privilege. That's a God-given mandate for us to sing together. He reminds us time and time again in the New Testament about the need for us to meet together and for us to worship him together. But when we can't, how has that affected our worship? For Nehemiah, meeting with other Israelites would have been a rare and, and delightful occasion. It would have been very unlikely that he would have regularly met with other Israelites and worshipped God in the way that they wanted to in the temple. To sing together would probably have been impossible. For Nehemiah, every decision, every day and every duty was performed as though it was toward God Almighty and that was his worship. And so when we look at his prayer in verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. Nehemiah is a broken man, presented with a devastation of his people and his culture. He's been re-educated into a new kingdom, full of idolatry and the worship of empire, and he has not forgotten who his God is and who he is. In all things, he recognises that God is on the throne, that God is above all other kingdoms, God is above all other kings, God is above all other authorities in the land. So Nehemiah's first response is to call out who God is and to throw himself on his mercy. It's because of Nehemiah's lifestyle of worship. Nehemiah identifies himself as a servant of God Most High. He is only interested in gaining the affection and the attention of the Almighty God, who has been ridiculed daily by those around him. Worship is a continuous recognition of the God we serve, the acknowledgement of him alone 
as able to instigate change, and him alone as the ruler of our hearts. For me personally, the book of Nehemiah is a fantastic resource for all of those involved in rebuilding the church, in establishing the community of God in a broken and hostile land. The book of Nehemiah gives us a blueprint for being an ordinary people and serving an extraordinary God. I hope that through this morning, you've seen and heard about Nehemiah's example of a heart of worship being brought to weeping by the destruction and defamation of God's name and being driven to work for the manifestation of God's glory. Just going to pray for us now. Lord God, I thank you that you are still Lord of Lords. I want to thank you that you are still the King on the throne. I want to thank you that you are still in all authority. Lord God, I want to thank you that nothing changes about who you are. I want to thank you, Lord God, that you call us apart, that you call us to be a people for you. I want to thank you that you give every one of us a job to do, a place to serve, a task to turn our hands to. And I want to thank you, Lord God, for the privilege of being able to do it for you, for your name's sake, for your glory in this land. Amen.